before we begin, we'd like to ask a favor. If you could take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we'd really appreciate it. We're told it helps the show find new listeners. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the BOB Podcast. This is our 14th episode. The BOB Podcast is all about short stories. For each episode, we invite a short story writer to read from their work and discuss the short story form, their writing process, how they got published, and what they're reading. The BOB Podcast is a project from Bricklane Bookshop. I'm Kate Ellis, and this is my co-host, Peter J. Coles. Hello. Hi there. Today, we are very excited to be talking to Gernaik Johal about his superb debut collection, We Move, which was published by Serpent's Tale last year. And, of course, it's available to buy from Brick Lane Bookshop. Gernaik Johal is a writer from West London. He won the Gallybrega Press Short Story Prize in 21-2022 and was shortlisted for the Guardian Fourth Estate BAME Short Story Prize in 2018. He graduated from the University of Manchester in 2019 and he works in children's publishing. Hello, Ganeg. Welcome to the BRB podcast. Thank you so much for making the journey up here to Hackney to join us today. How are you doing? It's great to be here. No, it's, yeah, it's lovely. Nice and rainy and wet outside. But, yeah. <laughs> it's a glorious January evening, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're going to begin the show with a reading from Ganeg. Um, yep. Which story would you like to read from? Uh, I'm going to read from a story I've never read from, from before, The Red River, um, just from the start. And I'm going to skip, there's a little sort of epigraph thing, but that requires singing, so I won't subject any listeners to that. All right, the Red River. Juckler, Onkar said, slamming down his winning hand. Quiet, will you, Balwant said, picking up his cards. If the landlady hears. It had been a decade since they last played, back in Jalanda, when Onkar was a boy and Balwant, his oldest cousin, was leaving for England. Now here they were in London, reunited, and Onkar was three games up. Balwant shuffled. He'd replaced two missing cards with carefully torn pieces of paper. Seven of hearts, queen of clubs. I'm out of practice, Balwant said. If this was solitaire, different story. Onkar lit a cigarette on the tea light, their one small gesture to Diwali. He leant out of the window to smoke, taking in the view. Balwant had described the area in his letters, detailed the shops and the people and the clothes and the music and the food and the buildings. But the reality didn't match the vivid pictures his words had conjured. It wasn't that Balwant was lying or exaggerating. There was just so much space between all those things. All Ankar could see now was an empty street. He'd read in the Times that, the most, that most of the universe and almost everything in it was made up of emptiness, that you could condense the human race to the size of a sugar cube. A light turned on in a room across the road. Letting out a long breath, he watched a man walk into the room, pick up something and walk out, leaving the light on. He put his cigarette out, the seventh one he'd ever smoked. He wondered at what point he'd lose count. When he landed yesterday, several oceans between him and his mother, the first thing he did was buy a pack of cigarettes. He picked the brand at random and tucked the little box into his rolled-up t-shirt sleeve, like he'd seen in the movies. Back at the table, he ran his hand over the wood. This was where Balwant had written all those letters. Most of the time, they were to his wife, his mother, or his son, but there would often be little asides for Onkar. Like a few months ago, he'd asked if Onkar could take his son to the cinema for him to watch a film he'd seen recently in Southall. The boy had babbled away the whole walk home, talking about his dad as if he was some god, invisible, all-powerful. 
Gar got engaged to Renu a few weeks later, and it was decided that he'd move to England before the wedding. He made a mental pact not to turn out like his old cousin. He'd be with Renu soon. Bawant dealt one final round and they played in silence. Onkar won and Bawant went to sleep. Left at the table, Onkar tried to write his first letter to Renu. What to say? Maybe he should wait until he had real news, until he'd gone to the labour exchange and got a job. He started to write a sentence and looked up. He stared at the tea light, thinking back to the first time they met at Renu's house and how the power had cut out. He caught her eye in the dark while she went looking for candles, a slight smile neither of their parents would see. Once the candles were lit, their parents talked. He and Renu both picked the palji over the barfi. She took the smallest bites. She fiddled with her kara clockwise and anti-clockwise, and it reflected shapes onto the dark ceiling. He rolled up his failed letter and lit the edge of the paper on the dying tea light. The paper burned for a few seconds before he blew it out. Then there was a shrieking sound. Balwan sprang out of bed. The bloody alarm! Out of my way, will you? He rushed over to a plastic box in the ceiling and waved his hands underneath it. Ankar could hear movements downstairs, the landlady. He opened and closed the window over and over, so that to someone passing outside who might happen to look up, it looked like a small struggling wing. We Move is such a strong collection. It's like full of complexities and layers and it uh, details um, many, many people in the community in Southall where we grew up. Um, the Observer described your book as a debut collection of such precocity and aplomb that it sounds, stands comparison to the likes of Juno Diaz and Brian Washington. I love both of those, so yeah. I hope you're happy with that. Very happy. <laughs> um, I wondered if you could um, begin the podcast by um, describing the collection in your own words for us. Yeah, no, um, I think maybe the best way to describe the structure is almost to describe the process of writing it, which was very organic. Um, I would start with one story, say, and, um, you know, like with any story, there's kind of foreground characters and the background characters. But I have such a sort of wandering gaze that I'd be interested in the background characters. Um, and then that would spark a new story about them from their perspective, about their life. Um, so, for example... If the characters go on the bus, I remember at one point thinking, well, what's the bus driver? Like, what's going on in their head and stuff like that? Um, so from each story sort of grew another one. Um, I kind of likened it to um, if you're baking, you know, from each batch, you take a little bit to feed your starter for the next batch. Um, so, yeah, they kind of grew out of each other. And because of that, there's this uh, a kind of uh, web between them. Um, that's the kind of structure. It's less like a a linear uh, collection than a kind of yeah like a web um and you know when i when i was starting it i was quite into um things like early internet hyperlink stories which is you would kind of navigate through a novel save through hyperlinks and because of that you'd end up with these strange connections between one piece to the next and i'd, I'd love there for a reader to come to the collection like that um so yeah so it's it's set within one the parameters of one sort of neighborhood, um, but you know it journeys backwards and forwards in time um, across different generations. Um, yeah, seeing the different ways that the people in that neighborhood are linked. Mm-hmm. Which brings us nice on to the next question: is it's it's set in South Hall in West London. For those who don't know, um, and it's contemporary. Um, right. Could you talk about why you wanted to talk about this specific time and place in your in your collection? Yeah, um, so I think. A lot of the stories were written in the um, sh- that sort of period between the Brexit vote and the pandemic, um, where I think 
there was a sort of lot of navel gazing across the UK. Um, and at the start of that period, I was living in Manchester at uni and um, I'd always seen the place I grew up in West London as a kind of uh, small section of a larger whole. And then when I moved away from it for the first time, I realized it's actually a, a weird blip. Um, so, s for example, Southall Broadway, um, the constituent, like the Southall Broadway Ward, sorry, has the lowest um, percentage of white Britons in the whole of the UK. It's like, I think like, well, in the last census, like 94% um, BAME or whatever the term is. Um, <laughs> and I realized, you know, this is a really interesting. And, and why did it, but why is an area like that? And then I'd always taken it as commonplace that that's what London was like and stuff. And then in the research around that, I realized there is quite a radical history of um, anti-racist um, activism that's happened in Southall. Um, it wasn't always going to be that way, but people fought to make it, to allow that kind of place to exist. And then on the other hand, there's the reasons of why people who immigrated to the UK would stay in that kind of area. Um, it's near Heathrow Airport. It was near where a lot of the factories were in London. Um, so there was that kind of work going on there. And But, you know, growing up there as a kid in West London, I, I didn't think about any of these things. Um, I'm not from like a big sort of storytelling family where they would kind of say, oh, this is where we came from and this is what we did. It was, you kind of get little scraps, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe part of my, if to psychoanalyze myself, <laughs> part of my sort of storytelling um, mind comes from maybe piecing those kind of scraps together. It comes across that you you write out your own curiosities. Yeah. I think the way you were describing looking at the driver on the bus, it's like, okay, right. if, it feels as you're reading it that that's how the stories develop. It's like you're kind of curious about how char characters or people get to a certain point in their lives and yeah. what might happen thereafter. Is that right? Is that kind of how you begin? Yeah, I think so. That's that's really nice, a uh, nice thing to pick up. Um, yeah, because I think I always come to writing as an interested future reader almost, like, um, and seeing characters like that I think helps. I kind of want to push against, there's a certain movement at the moment in fiction for a desire for the authentic voice, whatever that might mean in terms of you as a person of a certain demographic should be writing about characters of a certain demographic and if you're not of a certain demographic then you have no sort of authority to be able to imagine the inner lives of those people um i think for me personally that goes against what the power of fiction has been for me as a reader in that um you know, I don't read books solely by Punjabi men who grew up in London in the 20s or whatever. Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, like some of my strongest reader, reading experiences have been about um, people from different time periods, people from different parts of the world, etc. So, yeah, so it was important to me coming into writing the stories to have that kind of open gaze. And I know um, some people might have an issue with that, but I think... That's what has always felt like the most exciting reading to me. And that's what felt most exciting writing. And on the flip side, to write realist fiction about a place like Southall, which is so diverse um, and interconnected, it, it, you, it's a necessary thing to write outside of your own point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so while a lot of the kind of, I was, I, a lot of the novels I was reading are kind of um, first person, no sort of autofictional work which I really love I could never find myself able to write that 
Um, it would always, I would always see another character I was interested in, or if there was an event, I'd want to see it from multiple points of view because you can kind of see an entire different story that way. Mm-hmm. Like, sorry, I'm going on. And <laughs> take for example, I remember I have this like early memory in uh, school where, you know, I'd gotten in trouble for something. And then a friend, I was like, no, it wasn't me, it was him. And the teacher's like, there's two sides to every story. I was like, but this is the truth. Do you know what I mean? But in his head, that was the truth. And as a writer, it's really exciting to put those things side by side on the page and allow the reader to do the work. What I wanted to say from that was what I find so interesting about your stories, and Kate picked up on it too when we were reading them, is that they're incredibly optimistic. Mm. They're incredibly hopeful. Um, There was a quote, wasn't there, Um, that... um, we move means to stay hopeful. I think we read that somewhere. Yep. That's what your title, regardless of your circumstances. And this is so rare for a short story writer, <laughs> I find, to write, write hopeful things. Even Red River, which you read from the beginning. Um, when you read that beginning of that story, you assume that this is going to be a terrible story to the end. And it ends so hopefully and so wonderfully. I'm just like, I don't know, why, why did you choose to do that? Why did you choose to be hopeful with your short stories? Yeah, I think I took it as a bit of a challenge. I remember, um, I think it might have been a lecturer at university. It was like, the cliche is happiness writes right. No, happiness writes white. Um, And sort of thinking, well, why is that? And I know you need conflict as the engine for a story, say, but why does it, why are we so, as short story writers, averse to happy endings when you think, you know, so many Disney movies are great and they have great happy (laughs) endings. and I think there is a definite and so much great writing, which is really sharp and, um, you know, will kind of take an issue and just sort of dagger into it or a character and just rip them apart. And it's great. It's fun to read. Um, but I also think, you know, there's a market for the inverse where you see characters might go through conflict, but come out the other end. Um, and how can you do that in a satisfying way was a kind of challenge um, for me. And, but yeah, I think... A lot of the, the, the sort of hopefulness or the optimism it is in very small moments. So I know there's definitely been readers who think it is quite a dreary collection. And I'm like, but no. Um, and and I think because that's, I think, the way the kind of joy enters our lives. It is, it is in these kind of small shifts and stuff like that. Um, I, I sometimes think of stories as like you start as a kind of scuba diver and you're above the surface and then you kind of enter in. You see this sort of um, below the surface stuff get in with the murk you see the fish it's great and then at the ending for me wants to feel like that feeling of suddenly rising up to the surface again mm-hmm. you kind of end somewhere similar to where you started but um things have changed a bit and yeah and i think it's, it's hard to figure out how much at what level that's worked it's almost then i've I, just a few weeks ago i was very foolishly trying to make vegan whipped cream <laughs> this is a bit of a tangent and it was not going well because I was whipping for ages. It's, it's, it's fool's errand. Um, but there's this weird moment where suddenly the thing you're whipping, which has been liquid for ages, just suddenly transforms. And that's what I want the feeling of the ending to feel like. Do you know what I mean? As a writer, uh, when I know a story is finished is when it's, it feels to me like the consistency suddenly changed. Mm. And normally I found with these stories that was happening at a moment where uh, things are looking upwards. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just, just to go on from that, did you... This is something you were consciously trying to do with all your stories, or not with all of them? Yeah, no. I think it was a starting point, and I realized, God, I can't do it. I can't. I can't make a ha- happy story where, you know, two people meet, they fall in love, life's great. 
wouldn't that be great but um <laughs> no it's got to be two people meet fall in love then x happens to bring them apart can they then a slight shift to make them feel like maybe life can come back together again and stuff like that um it's yeah. it's that thing like if you're at the pub and you were asking me how my life's going and i was like oh yeah it's great job's great girlfriend's great family life's great and everyone's like just sort of politely smiling and looking down at their drinks compared to if i was like oh wow, i've got great goss about so and so um you know they did this it was an affair blah, blah, blah. And, you know you're a lot more interested i think it's just it is a part of human nature so it's a kind of balancing act as a writer who wants to write stuff that could be seen as optimistic could be seen as um hopeful to get that right mm-hmm. yeah I think I think you did get it right now. Oh, I, I I really like the way a lot of your stories they take a character to a point where it could be a point of no return and so often they decide actually I'm not going to go down that route that's going to sabotage myself. Yeah. Or that's going to kind of ruin my life. Actually I'm going to kind of pause or sometimes they're interrupted and then like you say they kind of reach the surface again but they're slightly shifted and they're aware yeah. of what could have been which sort of gives them the depth and it's like you're how do you select that moment? Do they just sort of spring to your mind? Yeah, no, it's hard. I think so for example, the first story arrival, um it's a very short one and it had been even shorter for quite a while until um I think my agent was like just feels like you need something more than my editor said a similar thing. And I was like, gosh, you clearly just don't understand short stories. They're supposed to be like a really slight like shift like a volta in a poem or whatever. Then I realized, no, they're so right like I've left it so subtle that you can't feel a certain way about the ending and that uh, that can almost be a kind of get out of a bit too like a get out of jail free card or something like a bit too easy to fall back on as a writer to be like well it's an ambiguous ending make your mind up it was always supposed to be that way where I think some of the best stories is where you can feel the writer's gone well actually no I'll push it a bit further and um and that's what happened with that story I pushed it you know, a page further and suddenly I had a, a much more concrete ending and I felt a lot more certain about it. Mm. It's that sort of postmodern versus contemporary yeah. thing. It's like, it doesn't matter. We just empty out into nothingness and, yeah. and and all meaning and therefore it's fine. I do think there's been a change recently of people like, no, I'm just going to actually say what I want to say Yeah, because that's okay. It is okay to have an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, some opinions. It is okay <laughs> to think things. And um, as a writer, I want to express that, I think. And yeah, I yeah. think you do that. I think you do that. Um, but yeah, just that optimism thing. It's just so, it was very refreshing. <laughs> oh, as a writer it was so it was as a reader sorry it was so refreshing to be like oh this ended nicely this yeah. ended like not nicely <laughs> but it ended with with hope and optimism yeah it's kind of maybe a silly question but i would like to um draw attention to the fact that you were born in 1998 right so you're you're, yes. are you, <laughs> you're 23 24 24 which to me is um outrageous and wonderful and perspective at such a young age and also how how you get such focus like you've you've got this wonderful collection out it's got like 17 stories all sorts of characters it's very tightly written it's very elegantly written and yet you're 23 how, <laughs> how do you do that Gunnik? <laughs> well I can't compare to writing any other kind of book <laughs> um yeah I think on the age thing what I'll say is uh I think the perspective in terms of worldview of, say, an 18-year-old is as valid as the worldview of a 43-year-old. 
I know one will have had a lot more experience and stuff, but in terms of the kind of intensity of emotion as a reaction to what's going on in your life, I don't think that really dips and wavers too much um, from my experience <laughs> as a 24-year-old. Um, <laughs> yeah, and oh, you also just see a lot of, you know, older writers then get to a certain age and they start writing about childhood. <laughs> and then no one, you know, we're not really... Uh, quite well. I'm sure we are, but it's not questioned to an extent of how can a, f- a 50 year old write about being 12. Um, but you know there is a lot, of t- a lot of time and space has happened in between those moments. Um, so I think as you kind of have to take on a certain amount of self belief when you're starting. And I know for sure I was like, well, I've, you know, I'm not qualified enough to to do this yet. But then I was like, but writing at 22 I guess I have a close proximity to someone who's 17 right now in 2020 whatever than you know someone else uh, could so yeah I guess that emboldened me a bit but I think it's the same as I was sort of saying earlier that kind of um that belief that you know if I can try just as a general person to think as someone else might think you kind of broaden yourself up to other worldviews and that's I just think a nice way to go through life and as a writer it's fun to play with and you know there's stories here set in retirement homes and you know and then there's a story about an eight-year-old girl and both of those were hard to write because I'm not eight years old and I'm not eight years old um but it but both were fun and yeah the BOB podcast is brought to you by Brick Lane Bookshop As a thank you for listening to us talk about short stories, we're offering all listeners a 10% discount. Just use the code BLBPOD, that's B-L-B-P-O-D, for a 10% discount of any purchase at bricklanebookshop.org. Language is a very important part of your work, not just for your, uh, not just your, the skilled use of it, but the presence of many different languages. Many characters are bi or multilingual, operating in different languages with family and friends and at work. And there are many misunderstandings and double meanings and stuff like that. Right. Could you talk about this? Was it difficult to do, to write like that? Yeah, no, I think, um, again, it was, I attempted realism. So to write realist fiction about London, you have to write about other languages. Um, just sit on a bus, listen, you know, that, it's all happening around us. Um, but from my particular perspective, um, I'm from a Punjabi background, but don't understand Punjabi fluently. I can't speak it fluently. Um, I've always felt sort of slightly within and without when I'm in a sort of family setting, say, where everyone's speaking Punjabi. Um, it gets to a point where it kind of I glaze over because I can't follow. And then it's just noise. And that's always been an interesting um thing to play with and maybe psychoanalyzing myself again (laughs) um, as a child where you're kind of having to kind of keep yourself entertained while you're in a room full of people speaking but you don't know what they're saying Um, your imagination starts to 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 run wild Um, so yeah so I guess language doesn't always mean understanding I guess from my from my like how I've been brought up Um, and that's interesting to play with there's a few characters where they've got that sort of going on but there are many others where they just simply do have access to multiple. Um, and yeah, so it, languages, it's just, um, I think also on a level in the book, it's not just someone speaking X language in the country where Y language is mainly spoken. It's also a lot about dialect and um, generationally speaking, people have different vernacular and stuff like that. 
and that's just fun to play with. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I love a lot of, uh, say, contemporary Irish writing, they're just different sort of idioms that they've got in, in, in a different way that English is spoken. And it's, you know, it's playful and musical and stuff in a, in a completely different way to say it is in Jamaica or India, the way English is used. And I wanted to, um, in my small way, bring a bit of that into the book of where English can be sort of this, um, not this rigid thing, but a kind of moldable clay. And um, an 18-year-old will have a different use of it than, than a 70-year-old. One of the things I wanted to ask was about how you think about time. A lot of your characters seem to consider what's happened in the past or what might have happened or, or how time, especially how time shifts relationships and the effect it can have. So you kind of, um, you jump through time quite a lot in your stories. Could you talk yeah. about kind of how you think about that and whether you plan it out? Right, yeah. I guess a sort of anecdote that is kind of in the middle of the book um, and w one of the kind of inspirations between a few stories is uh, is this song The Twelfth of Never and um, it's originally this very very like saccharine cheesy love song you know I'll love you for this long blah 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 um, and then I remember hearing Nina Simone sing it and in something in her voice all those lyrics suddenly like feel like they've been flipped in reverse and it's like oh this is someone who's l l lost the love but continuing to feel the love do you, do, you, do you know what I mean and um in that sort of small shift something that is very happy feels very sad and that to me feels like an effect of time or something and um so yeah so I think that was one of my sort of driving principles with the sm sort of small shifts in stories what if I could f do it like that? Like something that happened a while ago was happy, but now the way a character remembers it, you've sort of put a tint on it, a sort of Snapchat filter or whatever. <laughs> um, and then you're sort of seeing it in a new perspective. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I'm losing it a bit here, but do you, do you know what I mean? Like um, happy memories turn melancholy after yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sort of an equation there where time is a thing that changes things. Mm. Um, so... In some stories are formatted in a way where it's snapshots in time. So the one I read uh, um, from the Red River is a sort of, it's one year, then it's a few years later, then it's a few late years later. Others, you'll be in the present tense and then sort of, well, not seamlessly, but you'll sort of blend into the past as they start to remember. And then there's a past within that past and it's sort of more like a sort of Russian doll story. Um, and then there's one which sort of relates to what I started this answer with, um, where it's the story of a love one song through time all the way back to i don't know i can't remember like 1400s 1600s mm -hmm. to the present day um and it's almost this fun thing where if you see that kind of mathematical equation between the sort of emotions and time if you alter the the time element the other things sort of give out interesting answers mm -hmm. going from that though music seems to be a massive part of your collection um there's What's it? The piano, obviously. We move, the turn, uh, all center around music. Um, there's even a We Move playlist, is that right, on Spotify now? Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I saw that other. I think it's on the Serpent's Tale website. <laughs> oh, cool. Which is amazing. Um, do you have background in music or is it just something you're really interested in and felt like you wanted yeah. to write about? Um, I guess 
I don't. I definitely don't have a background in music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can terribly play the guitar or terribly play the drums. Um, uh, but yeah, I think for me, it's always been important. Um, and maybe because I'm not the most well-read person to kind of draw on different sort of wells. Um, and I've said this before and someone quoted me in an event and it sounded horrible. And I realized that was a dumb thing to say. But I, I think it's, and I'm going to say it again, <laughs> um, it's a bit incestuous almost of when a writer can only draw on books as inspiration. You're kind of, you know, you're feeding books and books and books. And then you get, that's when you end up with what feels to me as um, sort of academic uh, writing. So for me, it was always important when I'm trying to um, feed the book almost, um, I'm feeding it from music, from films, uh, from art or what what have you, um, so that it, I don't know, it gets a bit of a blend, um, a nice balanced diet. <laughs> a range of colours <laughs> You get the, the sense of yeah. that. Like, it feels like your book is fed by observations and life and kind of people right. you see about and kind of, and a lot of food. Yeah, well, yeah, you like you can almost fed by food. you can sense my mood writing it by going through. <laughs> like, was he listening? What was he listening to when he's writing it? Was he yeah. hungry? What did he want to eat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, food is also a massive part as well. And there's that great line: uh, sharing food was a way of experiencing the same thing. Mm. Is that something that you chime with in in your life? Like, yeah, I think so. I think for me, as someone who creates, you know, I write write books um it's a very like there's no instant gratification because i can write for this many years it takes this long to publish it then comes out then months years down the line a reader picks it up then they read it and they're totally separate to me um and that has a beauty to it too that it can reach across space and time or whatever what have you um but if i invite friends over and i cook and then we all eat we're all you know Every plate is basically the same. Um, we're all experiencing it in that kind of moment, and that feels really nice. Um, and then, but then I sort of play on it a bit in one of the stories where you know the character spent all day cooking and thinks they've done a good job, and then falling out with a friend. The friend then thinks, oh, in her head, oh, this taste is bland or whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I guess that is the thing for reading as well. We can all sit here and read the same story, we'll come out with different um, opinions or reactions to it. Is it, you're talking about the sort of time between writing and publishing. Is it is it strange to talk to us now about this book when yeah. you finished it probably two years ago? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking about this. I handed it, my agent sent it to the editor before Christmas in 2020. Wow. And 2023 now. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> um, yeah, so it is, yeah, it does feel, does feel surreal. But lovely also because you kind of feel like, wow, people are still reading that? Yeah. And really it's <laughs> only been out for months or whatever yeah um and off the back of that you're saying earlier that today you, you finished a new book are you allowed to talk about that <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. Uh, on on this podcast of short stories i'm going to talk about my novel <laughs> um yeah so you were you were tricked where you were tricked into writing a novel is that what happened <laughs> no it, it's no, i'm joking between... we have this we have this long-running thing about yeah. our, our short story authors eventually having to write uh, a novel because the agent's like, well, you just, just turn that one into Come a novel. On. Yeah, no, well, I feel very strongly about this as because um, a lot of these, a lot of events and stuff, they'll be like, so why short stories? And it just pains me because so, so many novels out there are short story collections, but they're just called novels. So then we just move on and then they, they get in certain um, shelf space and certain awards or whatever as novels. 
They're short story collections. I could name them. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. Um, List them. Well, no, yeah. Well, anyway, but yeah. So there, there are a lot of short stories collections out there, and then it's just frustrating when people will be like, "Well, I don't like short stories," and then they'll say, "I love Bernadine Evaristo or Zadie Smith," and you're like, "Well, they've written a few short story collections that were novels." Um, but yeah, so my <laughs> novel is a short story collection. Posing's not no. Um, it's a, it's very different to We Move. Um, it's called Sarasvati, and it's about the Sarasvati River in uh, ancient India. So it's it's long be- been believed that this river, which is in the Rig Veda, one of the oldest Hindi texts, as is this ancient, is this uh, mythical, legendary river. Um, in the text, it's called like uh, the greatest of all rivers, and um, it's believed that the te- it inspired the writers of the hymns and everything. Um, and because there was no evidence of it, people assumed it was fictional. Um, but over the years, with better technology, have realized it was a real river, but it, there was just an earthquake and it went dry into the desert, disappeared. Um, and the story is the story of the Hindu nationalist government now bringing this river back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been certain spot sightings of water returning in underground channels and stuff, um, which some people believe is the ancient goddess Sarasvati returning. Um, could also be that climate change is causing the uh, the glaciers in the Himalayas to melt as such an extent that they're filling the, the underwater channels. Um, so on the sort of surface level, the book is about this giant engineering project, but um, weaved in throughout is a lot of stuff about Sarasvati herself. Um, so she was the goddess of language, speech, music, everything that flows um, in one creation story. Uh, Brahma has created the universe and it's this massless, uh, formless void, basically. Um, and then so he creates the embodiment of knowledge itself. And Sarasvati comes out of his mouth and then tells him what to do with it. And that's how we get the stars, the cosmos, etc. Um, so a lot of uh, there's a kind of tradition around, you know, if you want to start a new literary or scholarly work, you would pray to Sarasvati, etc bit about that and then yeah it's told in seven sections seven stories <laughs> um following different characters whose lives interweave in different ways with the story of the river wow that's, that's, that's the spiel sorry just to be clear so it's a this is it's based on something really that's actually happening at the moment so the somewhat. river is somewhat returning or? or people have claimed to have seen right at different points the governments uh indian governments invested a lot of money into research as a brilliantly named Center for Excellence of Research into the Sarasvati River. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, it's a. I don't, I don't have any sort of strong beliefs on which sides I sort of sit on as as a researcher, as a writer, and it's fun to let all those kind of different things be true in the writing. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it, it, yeah, Hindu nationalism, climate crisis, colonialism, all those fun things. Wow! Yeah. Sold. Um, and, and are you doing any more short story collections as well or are you still writing I'm, well I, I wrote a short story last year and I'm writing one now which is a kind of uh, quite fun because it's a, it's called a duet so it's me with another writer oh, cool. and we are writing short story together which is that been, sounds a lot of fun yeah it's fun to stri- sort of shine a strange light on the creative process and stuff when you're working with mm-hmm. with someone I mean, we do it in a lot of art, different art forms you know music TV whatever You'll have writers' rooms and stuff. Um, 
but there's something about writing fiction where you're like, no, no, don't look at my stuff. Or, <laughs> you know, and who is who is that author? Uh, John McGregor. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, so it's, it's a fun fun thing to do together. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. Wow. How do you go about it? Can I can I ask yeah. you about the sort of um, logistics of that? Do you, do do you and John sit in the same room, or do you, no, you just kind of yeah. write stuff and then you you have a meeting and you kind of go back and edit each other's work, or how does it? Yeah, it's a bit. Um, well, I should say we're still in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, we are. We've created a sort of even bigger problem for ourselves by there's sort of two strands of the story. So potentially to the reader, you'd sort of see two writers writing two stories. Um, but we're kind of swapping at different sections to write each other's parts and then coming back mm-hmm. and coming back. Do you know, yeah. So we're kind of... They're sort yeah. of like consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's literally... Yeah, so you, you say a sentence, and, mm-hmm. um, but of, on a bigger scale. So a thousand words, then a thousand words. Um, but then it's quite fun because you're sort of approximating each other's voices. and Yeah, who knows how the finished product will end up, but it's been... How did that come about? Was it just something... Um, yeah, there's this uh, great new publisher for short fiction, which uh, some of the listeners might be interested in, uh, Scratchbooks. So they did a, yeah, a collection last year, I think called Reverse Engineering, mm-hmm. which is a nice... Um, a great sort of selection of writers, uh, short stories and sort of interviews about them. So I think they they've got plans ahead. I don't know if all this is secret or not. <laughs> no, I, um, yeah. I, uh, I believe that Tom, who runs Scratchbooks, would probably like me to say that Reverse Engineering Two is out now. Oh, there you no, go. He's, he's a listener <laughs> in all good bookshops <laughs> yeah, now. <exactly. laughs> but Tom is a listener, isn't he? Hi, Tom. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> Tom. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, very cool. That sounds like an amazing project as well. That's two, yeah, amazing things. I'm looking forward to reading. Oh, great. <laughs> Maybe we can get you and John McGregor on the podcast to talk about it when it finally comes out. Talk, answer every question at exactly <laughs> yeah. the same time. In so tandem. Just, yeah. In each other's voice. Oh, I could, do, I could do each ear so that like two mm. podcasts are happening at the same time in each ear. This is a funny question for you because obviously, you know, we've talked about your age, but I'm curious, what advice, if any, would you give to your younger self about how to become a better writer? Right. Okay. Um, Gosh, it's a hard one. I think a lot of the cliches are true, but some of them aren't. (laughs) And have fun with that. Um, Yeah, so I think there has been a certain style of short fiction for a long time, which is sort of less is more. um, I call them the big C's, the Carvers, the Chekhov's, et cetera, um, Chiva and like, where you should cut and cut and cut and you should everything you know cut all the fat and the meat and the just should only be bone or something um and i would say that is all well true on the sentence level when you see that kind of perfectly formed sentence where there is no fat it's it's kind of beautiful thing but in terms of plot i think for myself anyway um i have to be a kind of maximalist in the writing and a minimalist in the editing um You know, I think of it, you wouldn't think it looking at me, but in terms like bodybuilding, you have a kind of bulking season and then a cutting season where you change your diet for each thing. So when you're in that um, trying to be as purely adding as much as possible to the story, you should be consuming more than you're writing. So reading or watching or listening more than you're writing. And then in the editing, it helps to kind of cut back, cut back on the other stuff. So you um, can kind of come at your writing with as much... Um, of that kind of incisive 
editing. But it's, it's all iterative, I think. Um, it's not like I'll sit, write this giant draft and then cut it down to X word count and then it's a good story. It's about rewriting the story over and over. And if I told myself at the start how many versions of stories I would have by the time I finish, we move, I might have been like, God, well, I'll try something else <laughs> um, because it has gone through a lot. Okay, so we always have one final question for our authors, and that is, what are you reading at the moment? And who would you always recommend someone to read? Ooh, okay, what am I reading at the moment? I'm reading a couple of books at the same time because that's my style. <laughs> um, I'm quite a bad reader, but I'm trying, I'm trying Septology, which is the opposite of a short story. Um, John, John Fosse? I don't know it now. Is that um, Fitzcarraldo? Yeah, it's a big chunky thing written in one sentence, which immediately makes me kind of <laughs> groan. But I'm just trying it a bit. Um, and and what else was I? What else am I reading? This is this is terrible. I'm trying to imagine what's next to my bed. Um, oh, uh, White Tears, Harry Konzeru. I don't know if I'm saying that right or if I've got the title right. But that's great because I I love folk music and blues music, and it's about these um, two uh, American guys who um, sort of counterfeit an old blues song, I think, and um, then there's some ghostly turns, and that's uh, I've been enjoying that, and that's got quite a nice clean sort of style to it. Um, so two novels there, and who would I always recommend? Or someone that you maybe return to. Yeah. Um, short story-wise, definitely Yian Lee. Um, she's just... Her short stories are so good. I'm very boring when I talk about her, though, because I'm just like, this is really good, guys. You should, yeah, and then I, yeah, and everyone yeah, already knows. Um, I actually returned to one story recently, actually, because I, I listen every now and again to the, the New Yorker fiction podcast. Because um, it's a good, great bank for any short story lovers out there um, who don't want to pay for a subscription and also don't want to, you know, buy a book or, or whatever. Um, I definitely used it a lot as a student to kind of learn about short stories in a free way. Um, but there was um, a reading of the story Omakaze by I think it's uh, Waiki Wang, um, and I've read that a few times now, and every time I just think it's so funny and so sharp all the things that I can't do myself um, and I just love when someone else can do it. I think that that's the thing I sort of see when I, the fiction I love is the stuff I know I would never go there because I can't. Um, similarly, Ted Chang, he does these kind of sci-fi stories. I just, I'm not smart enough to do that. Um, so I just, I think then I'm able to have a purely uh, readerly sort of experience of it where it is just a story. Whereas I think if it's something similar to what I'm trying to do, then I read it as a kind of, I don't know, a mechanic looking under the car bonnet and it takes all the fun out of it. Um, and, you know, I read for work, I read for writing. So readings become this strange um, sort of thing where I, can, I can't unsee the things that I'm noticing. So it's really lovely and surprising when I get to a, um, a story that just completely grabs me like way back, you know, when I was getting into fiction. Um, so that, that's what I'm looking for. Stuff which I can't do, <clears throat> which someone else can do really well. Mm -hmm. Pure escapism. Yeah, yeah pure escapism. Reading that's what far I away from yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a good oh. feeling, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, 
I think that's it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Thanks for having me. We look forward Appreciate to all the it. new things. So the new book coming out, what's it called again? It's called Sarasvati. But it won't be out yet. But No, yeah, who knows when. in the future. Yeah. And this short story with John McGregor as well. Is that a yeah. collection or just a story? It, it'll be a collection of, and so they'll, they'll have a bunch of other writers doing um, sort of duets. Not sure when or where. But at some point, <laughs> I'm a great we'll publicist. Yeah. However, oh, we move is out now. <laughs> <laughs> the we move is out now. You can get it from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Gernick. It's Thank been you. a total pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the BOB podcast. Please remember to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can get in touch on social media via at Brickling Books or email us at inquiries at bricklanebookshop.org. The music, as ever, is by Andrew Everett. Andrew is also a bookseller at Bricklane Bookshop and we'd like to thank him for allowing us to use a section of his beautiful track, Can't Have Everything, for the show. If you like his music as much as we do, you can find more on andreweverett.bandcamp.com.